Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. A little lumpy here. Wait a second, what's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding, only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent. Mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So in the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss issues like how to help our patients work through decision-making, what our leaders should do to decrease physician burnout on a systems level, the Venn diagram that is medicine, marriage, and money, being an American physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. So let's start the show. This is part two of two of my interview with Dr. Stephanie Sog, clinical psychologist at the MGH Weight Center, where we talk about the when and how of discussing a patient's weight. If you missed part one, definitely check it out first. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And these are typically prescribed by primary care physicians? They can be. What I have encountered is a lot of patients who get sent to us because their primary care physician isn't comfortable prescribing a weight loss medication. There's this community of body acceptance influencers out there who would argue that a doctor should never discuss a patient's weight, right? The argument is working on weight stigma and weight loss at the same time is a contradiction, right? There's this systemic oppression of overweight people and even this conversation is perpetuating the problem. Like variety is the spice of life. This should be celebrated. It's not a problem to be solved. How do you respond to that? So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at that. Somebody else was just asking me about this the other day. I can't remember in what context, but I don't think anyone should ever be shamed or stigmatized for any reason, much less a medical condition like obesity. And I am not thoroughly familiar with every proponent of the fat acceptance movement, which is, I actually don't like using the word fat, but that's the word that they choose. I can't say, well, they say this and I don't agree with it. I can say that I've heard that argument. I have heard the proposal that having a high weight isn't ever a problem and that people should never be encouraged to change it. I don't agree with that. I think that if it is affecting someone's health or there are plenty of people out there who have high BMIs who have no medical conditions related to weight. There are people who would argue that they will eventually. I don't think that's necessarily the case. The thing is, it's a risk factor. Exactly. It's a risk factor. doesn't mean it will happen. It's just increasing the possibility that something might happen. Right. And I think if we're able to really discuss weight as purely as we can in terms of health consequences, 
it doesn't have to be stigmatizing. I think it still often feels stigmatizing because people with high weights have been overtly stigmatized about their weight so much in their lives that any mention of it feels stigmatizing. So again, I think it's so sensitive and so important what words we use to discuss it. And I think it's also important to establish a relationship of trust. I mean, would you, within the first 10 minutes of meeting a patient, ask them probing slightly judgmental questions about their sex life or their sexual orientation? Or, you know, you have to have some kind of rapport with the patient and you have to be sensitive. And certainly, I mean, I'm in a different position because if a patient is in my office, they've come to us because they want to lose weight or improve their health. So that's different than most of the people that are listening to you, where the patient's not coming to them for weight. I think just like anything else. So for instance, if you have a patient who is single and sexually active, asking them in a sensitive, respectful, health-focused way about the number of partners they have and what kind of protection they use against sexually transmitted infections, that shouldn't be stigmatizing. And again, it's a health risk thing. So asking about it in terms of what's the impact on health, I think is important. I think this is the thing. People in the fat acceptance movement, things that I have read and heard from that movement, as you say, oftentimes they say, don't even bring it up. Don't encourage people to lose weight. Can I give you my thoughts on it? Because I've got a few. Yes. So my thought is that I'm a fan of the fat acceptance movements, right? To use their terminology, not mine. I'm a fan of it because mental health is a huge part of all of this. And so if we can get people to be more accepting of how they are, and then still try to be better versions of themselves, then we'll all be in a better place. Because like you said earlier, we're looking to help patients create better habits, not set expectations of what their weight's going to be or what they're going to look like. We want to all strive to move more and eat better, be accepting of where you are, but always strive to do and be better. So these are not contradictory ideas. Even if their weight doesn't budge, I think that's the thing. I feel very strongly that nobody should be stigmatized about their weight and that conversations about weight need to revolve around health and sort of how is it affecting you? And if a patient is sort of objectively healthy by all of our kind of parameters and they're eating a fairly healthy diet, not a perfect one, but fairly healthy one, and they're being active on a regular basis, don't bug them. Or if that's not the case, certainly shaming people is not the way to go. There's research showing that experienced weight stigma and internalized weight bias both lead to pathological eating behaviors. So there's sometimes this argument that's put forward, and I think Bill Maher got into trouble over this. He put forward this argument that- Guy's a villain. We should be stigmatizing people so that they're motivated to change. And it's like, you don't think people are motivated to- change? Do you think that all the people that have a high weight are delighted to have a high weight? And making them feel awful about it is really going to work. 
Exactly. It doesn't work. We know this. And there's lots of research to show that it does not work. And there's this idea that keeps popping into my head about the fat acceptance movement. There's a movement that is adjacent to the fat acceptance movement called the health at every size movement, where the idea is that let's just take weight off the table and let's just focus on your health. So let's say your BMI is high and you're genetically predisposed to have a high BMI. Let's just have you be as healthy as you can at that BMI. Let's make sure you're eating healthfully. Let's make sure that you're moving. And if the scale doesn't budge, we're not going to freak out about it. We're going to make you as healthy as you can be. I think that there's, and this may be sort of an extreme faction of the fat acceptance movement that sort of argues that it is inaccurate to say that excess adiposity is unhealthy and correlated with weight. And I've heard people make arguments that there's not good evidence that having a high weight puts you at risk for more health problems. That's extreme. I don't think that's correct. I also don't think it's at all correct to assume that anyone who has a high weight is unhealthy or is going to be unhealthy and that we need to save them despite themselves. Well, even the term unhealthy, I would put that with the good, bad food terms that we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. That's a really nebulous term. It's a moving target. And I might have a bunch of unhealthy habits one month and have healthy habits the next month. So am I healthy or unhealthy? I'm talking about the state of their health, not whether their behaviors are healthy or unhealthy. Okay. But you're also right about that. I agree with a lot of the things in the fat acceptance movement, except when it gets extreme and says you shouldn't ever encourage people or help people to lose weight and that you shouldn't tie weight in with health. I think health is the main reason. When someone wants to lose weight because they feel terrible about themselves because of how they look, to me, the problem is how they are assessing their own self-worth. And the answer to that isn't that they need to lose weight. It may be helpful for them to lose weight for their health, and they may feel better about themselves as well, but it's really important to feel good about yourself, whatever you look like. The first question that I ask all of my patients is, how is your weight affecting your life right now? And if they don't mention anything about their self-image, I will ask about that and say, is your weight affecting your self-image? And whenever I get someone who says, no, I think I'm awesome. I say, excellent. You're already a step ahead of the game because it does not help you to feel crappy about yourself. Again, we get into that situation where if their mental health is tied in like that and they're not in a great place, it's going to be much harder for them to develop those and keep those healthy habits. Whereas if they're accepting of where they are, I'm great, then they're in a better space to start or continue those healthy habits. Absolutely. I talk to patients a lot about how they're thinking about their eating and the tendency to, that many of my patients have, well, not all of them, to be extremely self-punitive in their cognitions about their eating. And I'll say, okay, well, I think, you know, a lot of times, especially I'm in New England, we've got that Puritan sensibility there's this idea that if I'm really hard on myself, then I'm going to do better. I'm going to straighten up and fly right. 
right? That shame. Right. And I say, is that what happens? And they will say, no, actually, I feel worse and I end up eating more. I end up in the coat closet with a box of Oreos. Yeah, exactly. So instead of going, all right, that was what I ate for dinner tonight and going back to, you know, healthier habits. If you're beating yourself up about it, you may, it may take longer to get back into healthier habits. So it doesn't help you do better. It can actually make things worse. And at best, you feel like crap. So it is completely not useful. And let's just try to take it off the table. So I have a proposal here. When we do want to bring it up with patients, when we do want to discuss their weight, how would you feel about us saying, well, before we even get to your weight, so your weight is, let's talk about your back pain, right? You're carrying some extra weight. It would certainly help, although it may not relieve the problem altogether if you address this. But before we even get to that, let's talk about your sleep and let's talk about your mental health. Let's tackle those two things first, because it's going to be really hard to tackle the weight if your mental health and your sleep are not in order. So let's get those things squared away. Then we'll get to this other issue. I understand why you're proposing that. I think you might not need to go quite that far in showing that you're not overly focusing on the weight. Okay. As a psychologist, I will also say there's a ton of stigma about mental health stuff, especially, I mean, not in my circles that I run in and in the culture where I was brought up in, but there's a lot of stigma about mental health or therapy or what have you. So when you say mental health, what some patients will hear is you think I'm crazy. So instead of mental health, I'm not sure how you would put it. That's actually an episode unto itself, how to even bring up the issue of mental health. Because, you know, I see a lot of patients with tinnitus ringing the ears is- Makes people insane. I wouldn't use that word, author of bad words, the article. I use it in the late sense of the word. But they're inextricably tied together. So whenever I talk to people about tinnitus, I also talk about anxiety, depression, about mood disorders, mental health. But I don't know a great way to bring it up, just like prior to this episode, didn't have a great lead into how to talk about weight. So that would be a great episode in and of itself. How do we bring up mental health? What if you said emotional well-being? Okay, I'll take it. Instead of mental health. All right, I don't need that episode anymore. I'll just say emotional well-being. Yeah, we fixed it. You're a psychologist. This is what you do. You know this stuff. Right, because if you say before we even bring weight into it, you're already planting the seed that weight's going to come into it. Yeah. So depending on what the thing is, like if it's pain or if it's sleep apnea or whatever, you might say there's different components of this and maybe even draw a pie chart. I'm just laughing to myself because we're talking about pie and we're talking about (laughs) weight, but a Venn diagram, a Venn diagram. And here's the different potential components to this problem. And with sleep, there's the biological with sleep apnea. There's behavioral sleep habits, there's anxiety and depression that can affect sleep, there's, there's different medications that can affect sleep, and weight can affect sleep. So you can say, here's the array of different things we can look at. And then weight is just one of those things, and maybe start with one of the other things, and then include weight, but still asking, this can be a tough topic for some people. Are you comfortable talking about this? Permission, just like we did with the weight, ask permission. Yeah. But I'm saying with the weight when you're talking about, so if you're dealing with pain, 
same thing. Well, there's all kinds of things that can affect pain and that pain can affect synergistically. And so saying, okay, well, here's all the different components that can affect and be affected by pain. And let's take a look at each of them so that you're not singling out the weight. Part of the Venn diagram. Yes. Part of the pie. Yes. Or the Oreo. I love it. I always learn so much whenever we talk and feel like I come away being a better physician for it. Well, I'm very, very glad that you feel that way. I think the next episode is going to need to be, all right, now we've opened the door. We now had a good start to the conversation. We're not alienating the patient. We're making the relationship stronger. What works? That's going to be the next episode. What works? That'll be an episode unto itself. If I'm the guest for that, I'm going to be frustrating because again, and I touched on this a little bit and I feel bad because I don't really feel like I answered your question when you said, what do we tell them to do about it? And again, it has to be personalized and certain options won't be acceptable to some patients. Certain options won't be feasible for some of them or won't work for some of them for just biological reasons. So figuring out what the right approach is, is really difficult, but I think you can't go wrong with paleo. (laughs) You can go very wrong with paleo. You can't go wrong with saying diets are temporary. Diets don't work. We want to look at, are there aspects of your behavioral habits that could be improved in a way that doesn't feel too painful to do forever? Can you go from four sodas a day to one per day, even if it has to be gradual? Can you go from not doing any physical activity to taking a 10-minute walk every day and seeing if you can work your way up from there? But this is the other thing that's really frustrating for everyone, including professionals in the obesity medicine world, is there is no magic solution. And even our best treatment, which is metabolic and bariatric surgery, isn't a magic solution and still requires hard work and still results may vary as they say on TV. So trying to keep people away, like certainly not saying, well, just do keto or just do intermittent fasting, which is such a big buzzword these days. But look, there's unfortunately, there is no way in the world to get around the need to be maintaining a fairly healthy eating routine, both in the choices, the timing, and the amounts in which you're eating, and being active on a regular basis. You're probably too young to remember these sort of old-fashioned ads for these belts that would vibrate and people would stand in the belt. I know that from Betty Boop cartoons. It was purported to exercise (laughs) that you didn't have to exercise yourself. Yeah. There's no magic bullet. No, there's no way around maintaining fairly healthy habits. There just isn't. This will be my last question. You know, I brought up BJ Fogg a couple of times, but is there anything in the habit development literature, any resource that you tend to turn to, to help them develop the habits that they want to develop? I do rely a lot on when you say the literature, I mean, going back to the OGs of BF Skinner and Ivan Pavlov and just talking about. So you're ringing bells? Classical conditioning. And so stimulus control, which I'm happy to explain if you want me to explain, but sort of like using learning principles, which are about habits are learned. So using behavioral principles, operant and classical conditioning. I am one of these people that thinks that planning 
and having a routine will solve most problems. So really doing some advanced planning and really getting into a routine so that your healthier habits are automatized because anytime you leave it up to choice, then there's a chance you're going to choose the thing that's less healthy. So if it's thing you just do automatically, it feels much less effortful and it's much more likely to happen. So using different kinds of behavioral principles to automatize behaviors and get people into a routine. Excellent. Planning. I love it. And also operant conditioning, positive reinforcement works, negative reinforcement doesn't, which is why shame doesn't work. Well, negative reinforcement does work. But it extinguishes quickly. No. Right? Isn't that what it was? I'm not remembering my psychology. You're not. I actually read an article, an original article by Albert Bandura, who's one of the pioneers of behavior theory, cognitive behavioral theory, who used the word negative reinforcement incorrectly. Anything that has the word reinforcement means it's rewarding. So what negative reinforcement is that you're rewarding a behavior by removing an unpleasant stimulus. So negative reinforcement, somebody feels really stressed out they grab some potato chips and for half an hour, they feel calmer. That's negatively reinforcing. It's taking away the stress. Okay. But you know what I was getting at? Punishment. At punishment, a negative stimulus. Exactly. So positive reinforcement, any kind of reinforcement works way better than punishment. And harnessing classical conditioning is also really important. One of the behaviors I work on the most by far is getting out of the habit of eating in front of the TV at night because it's a self-perpetuating behavior because of classical conditioning. And we can use classical conditioning principles to extinguish that. Well, all great stuff to think about, all great stuff for us to include in our practices. So I really appreciate you taking this time again to speak to me again. I am sure this is going to be as popular, not more so than the last episode. And I would definitely love to have you back again. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm flattered to have been asked back a second time and would be happy to come back as many more times as I can be useful. All right, Dr. Stephanie Sog, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.